0: Hello and welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew O'Connell, and today's guest is Claire Brown, and we will be discussing Buddhist economics. Now what does that do to you when I say that, Buddhist economics? Does it get you excited? Does it inspire a sort of cynical reaction or indifference? Well, whatever it does, give this conversation a go. Claire is wonderfully charming, and we had an interesting discussion, not just about her book, the Buddhist Economics, An Enlightened Approach to the Dismal Science, but about economics more broadly, and about the role of Buddhism in it all. And I found it rather stimulating. Claire Brown is a professor of economics, and she's also the director of the Center for Work, Technology and Society, all at the University of California Berkeley. For those of you who are more knowledgeable about economics, politics and economic policy more generally, you may be interested to know that Claire has done some very interesting work on poverty, unemployment and government policy, as well as industrial relations and labour economics. So she knows her stuff In 2011, Claire actually started the field of Buddhist economics at UC Berkeley. So she got the whole thing going. And although you may hear some buzzwords that raise your hackles, such as well being, don't be scared, give it a go, we get beyond some of those buzzwords to talking more about the nitty gritty and the challenges that emerge when we think about economics, politics. And something like Buddhism and the role of individuals and societies within that. And we also touch on the environment too. Finally, for those uh, less familiar with this topic, Claire makes some book recommendations at the end. And for those of you who are really into this kind of thing, I recommend checking out Claire Brown's website. It's called Buddhisteconomics.net and you'll find various resources on there, including a reading group guide, which you can use with her book or just on its own. And it certainly could be an interesting activity to carry out in a Dharma hall or in your own family home. Why not? Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha podcast, Professor Claire Brown. I'd like to begin, Claire, by asking you a couple of questions about your professional life. So let's begin with your professional career I understand that you are a professor of economics and that you actually started the Buddhist economics program at your university. Can you tell me whether that's true or not and can you tell us a little bit about both of those pursuits?
1: Yes, it's good to be with you, Matthew. So, I am a professor of economics at University of California, Berkeley, and my specialties have been on inequality, Uh, labor markets and the kinds of jobs people have, especially low-income jobs, how to eradicate poverty, how to share prosperity, how to improve the standard of living, those kinds of issues. And so you can see why I might segue into teaching something, developing a program called Buddhist economics, because it brings together sharing prosperity, living in a sustainable world, reducing suffering. And my program is unusual, but, but very well accepted at Berkeley and the students love it.
0: So tell us a little bit more about how you got that program started. Was it a personal desire? Were you encouraged to do so by others? What is it principally that motivated you?
1: What motivated me was having worked on inequality for decades uh, with colleagues at MIT as well as Berkeley. We hadn't made any progress in making change. We we knew how to, to reduce inequality. We We had all the programs, we had the research, but the politics weren't behind us. And so we also taught economics in a way that did not Use that, that didn't we didn't teach economics how we wanted mm. to? None of us were happy with how we were teaching intermediate and beginning economics because it was based upon free markets where inequality didn't really exist in free markets. Free markets gave you the optimal outcome, and so I looked at my colleagues, I said, we aren't teaching this right. They said, no, but you know, it's hard to teach economics. And so we we know how to do this. We know how to teach free markets. It's easy. It's quick. Students get it. So what if it's not relevant? And I said, hmm, I don't think so. So I started asking, I actually came up with a daily walk with my dog and I looked around, I said, hmm, I wonder how would Buddha teach introductory economics? (laughs) And that intrigued me. So I started thinking about it and working on it. And I set up a seminar called Buddhist Economics because a colleague in psychology said, Claire, you really ought to teach a seminar in this because otherwise you'll never have the time to work Uh on it. And boy, was she Uh right. So I said, "Okay," And I did. And the seminar was well accepted. My department at Berkeley is well known for being inclusive of all kinds of thinking and pushing along new ways of thinking. And so they were encouraging, but I don't know of any other Buddhist economics program and other economics departments. Although the idea of the field has grown quite a bit. For example, there was a a big conference in Hong Kong in April before all the rallying started. And It was very well attended. It brought in scholars from around the world. And there's a professor in Budapest and I who are starting a a book series on Buddhist economics. So it's a field that is growing and has a lot of following and researchers around the world.
0: Interesting. Before we talk a little bit more about what Buddhist economics actually is, if we just talk about economics more generally speaking, in terms of a subject material that is taught at universities, what is it that's actually, what is it you're actually doing as a professor within that context when you're teaching economics? Are you preparing future economists, or is it part of a general integrated education in which you're basically just teaching them the ins and outs of economics as an academic subject?
1: Probably a little of all of the Hmm. above. But I think, I think Matthew, if you want to practice holistic economics today, and holistic economics means interdisciplinary economics, you probably wouldn't get your PhD in economics. You'd probably get it in ecological economics or natural resource economics yeah. or something that automatically integrates other disciplines in a way that integrates how to be sustainable, how to share prosperity, how to reduce suffering about these different ideas. So for example, at the graduate level, I helped start a program at Berkeley called development engineering. And that means actually bringing together engineers who work on technology to improve the standard of living in the developing world. And it brings together as a social scientist with them because the problem was the engineers just stayed in the lab. The social scientists were clueless about taking technology out to the Uh. field. But when they work together, their synergy is astonishing, and they become multidisciplinary. They figure out how to use technology from the user's viewpoint, how to take it out to the field, and make it successful. And so, moving ahead in that way, I think is the only way to actually break, break into new ground, new ideas as we teach our students.
0: That all sounds very interesting and very encouraging too. So let's move on now then and talk a little bit about Buddhist economics. So what is it exactly? Um, what contribution have you made to it? And how's it going teaching this material? What, what sort of reaction are you getting from students and colleagues?
1: Well, Buddhist economics is actually, I think, Think not yet quite well defined. Mm. Like for example, the Hong Kong conference, there were few economists and many people who study Buddhism. And so of course, one takes an approach that builds upon their own strength and expertise. So when I say Buddhist economics, I'm talking as an economist and I'm not talking as someone deeply grounded in Buddhist studies. And one can say that for the For the Buddhist studies experts, they really don't know much economics, but together we can work in a way that really helps. And even among the social scientists, some of us know more about how economies function and others may know more about how companies or management functions. So my colleague in Budapest, Professor Zolik, he's very good on management practices but um, that's why we we work together because, to be honest, I don't really I know about three companies that I would call practicing Buddhist economics and that's about it. Mm. Um, so it's it's a it's a sort of a hodgepodge of things. But I could tell you how I think of Buddhist economics.
0: Yeah, let's, let's hear that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, because that I can talk about and not feel uh, sort of a little uneasy. Right. So. To be a Buddhist economics, well, as an economist, I always start off. What are your assumptions? What are you assuming? Which is the basis of your worldview? And so for me, Buddhist economics brings together the assumptions of interdependence and permanence and compassion. So you say that to any Buddhist, they say, oh, OK, I get it. So we're all interdependent with each other and the planet. Everything, of course, is impermanent. And we all deeply care about relieving suffering, being compassionate, and caring. So the minute you say that, though, if you say that to someone who believes in a strict free market economic approach, they'll look at you like, just a minute. No, 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 Mm -hmm. no, no. Sorry, you just turned the world upside down. We know people are selfish and egocentric, not interdependent and caring. We know that impermanence no 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 man dominates nature and everything only gets better and better if you that's what you mean by impermanence growth yes we know that we can make things better you can see the element of control and then thirdly the idea that your goal might be to relieve suffering and to help others is like, what? No, no, no. The goal is to maximize your own well-being, your own income, maximize the income of your country with the focus on income and consumption. So it's very materialistic. Whereas in Buddhist economics, we never mentioned income or materialism. We would talk much more about sort of one sense of who they are who who they are in terms of their interdependence with others. So that my happiness depends upon your happiness. My happiness depends upon the health of the earth. And I really want to get rid of my ego and my greediness and all of my other clashes so that I can move towards enlightenment and even if you're not a buddhist you can want to improve the world in this broad in this broad way that's not materialistic but based upon quality of life so that's buddhist economics basically think of it as just a broad based economics that's trying to improve the quality of life of all people and the health of the earth
0: yeah it's difficult not to to hear what you're saying and and think that you're you're basically describing a pipe dream i wonder how this could exist in the world. So you talked about three companies that might be practising this. How about countries, states, cities? I mean, we hear about Bhutan with its approach to global happiness, which sounds great and probably can function in a very small, top-down country of the size of Bhutan. But not just uh, neoliberal capitalists would would sneer at some of the suggestions you're making. I think even relatively far-left generous Marxist economists would probably look down at some of your proposals. So from a practical perspective, the question would be this, could this exist as anything other than something that um, sits alongside a regular economy in a developed country? Or is it merely an ideal that somehow you'd like to perhaps have some influence on main economic thinking and policy?
1: Great question. So thank you for asking me, because of course, it's not the first time I've heard this question. Sure. Mm-hmm. And when I would give my talks on economics, Buddhist economics, when my book first came out, people said this is a pipe dream. So, and to be honest, um, you can't point quickly to a country say they practice Buddhist economics. In Bhutan, as you say, it's too little and it's not very well developed. But finally, I put together a research team of students. Mm-hmm at Berkeley to create what we call a sustainable shared prosperity policy index, Mm -hmm. um, which was to go out and collect data on policies by country to create a Buddhist style economy. Although we never call it a Buddhist economy, we call it a sustainable shared prosperity Mm. policy index. And What's really interesting, Matthew, is there are many indices about economic outcomes or economic performance, but there are no indices to speak of that look at policies and measure policies and create an index for that. And so it's hard to say a country has certain policies unless you have some way to measure it. So we did that. And we actually found that, first of all, you can create a policy index that looks at the goals we care about, like sustainability and reducing inequality or having an equitable economy, structuring markets to get outcomes that you want that aren't just controlled by big business, and also setting up social programs that create good education, good health care provision, provides human rights, governance of democracy, and so forth. So we put this together and we're actually almost about to release our first white paper on yeah. it. So this is a timely question that, of course, I'm very excited by. And I can also tell you some of the countries. We we could do it for 50 countries. Yeah. There was enough data for 50. So as you might guess, the top country was Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> and they had a score of 81 on our index, which goes from Basically, it could go from zero to 100. It goes basically from 50 to 100. Okay. okay. But then the next country is Finland. After that, Denmark.
0: Surprise, surprise. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. So those did surprise me. But the fourth country is France. Oh, wow. Okay. The, yeah. Fifth country is Austria. Mm. Fifth country is Germany, Norway, and then Australia, Canada, Slovenia. Those were the top 10 mm. The UK was 12 though. Well,
0: that's not bad, yeah.
1: Yeah, and let's see, are you in Italy? I am, yes. Okay. Well, Italy unfortunately was 28, <laughs> right above New but right above New Zealand and everybody loves New Zealand.
0: Right, yes, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then I have still haven't gotten down to my country.
0: Right, yes, I imagined. <laughs>
1: Yeah, thirty six. Wow. The United States was thirty six out of fifty. Yeah. but you learn a lot about these countries, and even the top ranked countries. No matter what, they can all improve right. in certain policies. So mm-hmm. you can learn that way. Um, and even though Sweden is also number one in sustainability and in governance, which are social programs, they're not. They don't do as well. On market structure, how to structure markets to work well, and that's num- they were number eight there, and mm-hmm. Austria's number one, in market structure. But you learned so much. I can't believe how much I learned about policies mm. and and how they're working, how they're set up, and how they're working across countries. So I don't think I don't think it's a pipe dream anymore.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah, and I, I'm just thinking from what you've been saying that that's really that's where the practical application seems to be possible, right? At a smaller scale in approaching specific small-scale decisions governments are making and policies they're enacting, rather than as a wholesale project to, I don't know, replace uh, capitalism as we know it?
1: I'm actually not so sure about how to phrase that because I see these as systems of policies mm-hmm. and not as sure. I really don't think policies work individually. I think they work as part of a big tapestry mm-hmm. because they work together, and they complement each other, or they can't even work against each other, but they tend to um, go together in these countries. And I think that, of course, Buddhist economics is a form of capitalism because it has private property in it, it but the state plays a very big role. And so in capitalism, people get confused no matter who you are, unless you're a political scientist. Capitalism can go all the way from free markets where they really want the government to, you know, bow out. Although the government absolutely has to be there to regulate private property, to protect it, to provide public safety. So the government plays a role in every economy. The question is, when you have a market economy, which we all have, the question is, who's going to structure the market? Somebody has to structure the markets to make them work well. Is it going to be business for their own profitability, which is what the neoliberalism is all about? It's called deregulation. But deregulation is really just saying the government says, oh, well, big business, energy, go ahead. You can, you can be controlled by fossil fuel companies. Oh, medical care in the U.S., okay, big pharma big big insurance companies. You can control medical care in the US. And so in each country, you look and say, oh, who's structuring the markets? Who's setting up the rules? And that, to me, is what these policies are telling us.
0: Hmm. There also seems to be a question there about the vision that a specific government has or holds about its purpose and its duty to citizens, right? Because you know, the free market economy obviously determines that uh, the government's role is to minimise its intervention in the lives of citizens. But it also means that it it has a particular vision of the individual, which is quite divergent in the countries you mentioned before. And uh, one of the challenges that, that always comes to my thinking, and it's not restricted to economics, but ideas more generally about how cultures survive, flourish, and change together is, you know, what are the visions or the sense of common purpose that allow certain types of change to be enacted and certain types of change to be resisted because it's interesting that you mentioned the the, the know-how about markets in some of those northern European countries not being as well scoring as some of the other characteristics but perhaps that's because they've offset their duty as governments, towards the economy and just basically shifted their priority towards uh, ensuring certain quality of life for their citizens. And the question that comes out of all that really is, um, what is it that would convince governments, in your view, to start changing at least, to some degree, the direction each one is taking with regards to the market and perhaps integrating a a tapestry, as you said, of policy changes that might incorporate some of these very good ideas that you've mentioned so far?
1: Oh, I think that you've really put your finger on a really important issue. Unfortunately, it looks like right now our countries and our cultures are devolving and not evolving Mm -hmm. in a way that a Buddhist would care about. And so I'm a big believer in cultural evolution, Mm -hmm. which is basically how, what are, what are our norms and social practices? And Buddhists would say, oh, right livelihood. Yes, I can see the, the Eightfold Path. That's actually, if we could all follow that, the cultural evolution would be in a direction that I think would be for the common good and improve everyone's sort of quality of life as it reduces suffering. But right now it seems that all of a sudden, and I think we can get back to some of the reasons for that, but right now A lot of our countries, including yours and mine, seem to have the culture becoming very, very um, fearful. Hmm. And the fear is driving them to find scapegoats and to blame others and to push out migrants and people that are suffering and to become sort of self-centered and trying to say, well, what's in this for me or why isn't my income going up or um Sort of not thinking in a broader, more more caring way about other people, and especially right now, not caring enough about the health of the planet. So, i I think that I'm not sure how to answer the part of your question about what do we do about it. But I do see at least at least in the United States and in Italy too. I'm sure there's definitely a revolt going on against the greed and the selfishness of the rich in the big countries and the current president.
0: It is a little bit different obviously to America and also to to Britain my you know my home uh, country but it's um it's yeah, certainly interesting times. I think there's so much going on that it's difficult to come up with a kind of easy answer to the question I posed you, obviously, and that was, that was terrible of me to pose it, knowing it's almost impossible to answer. But uh, who knows, maybe somebody out there has got an answer. <laughs> you never know. It's good to keep asking the question anyway. In Italy, we've got a very high level of youth unemployment. And one of my concerns, which resonates with what you said before, I have a similar interest in or collective or cultural evolution, which I think is something that um, we need to think about far more thoroughly. The younger generation, what's alarming about it is that there's this um, a different kind of political engagement and disengagement than we're seeing in the States and in the UK. Italy is sometimes quite far behind those two countries. And, you know, I produce this... Uh, episode called The Political Turn recently for the podcast in which, you know, I actually praised what I see as quite dysfunctional political engagement by a lot of the younger folks, although I'm very pleased they are engaging politically. I think that's fantastic. But in Italy, instead, we've got a lot of disengagement. There's no work. There's this uh, category of young person. I don't remember its sociological name, but it basically categorises a person who's given up on work, uh, isn't working, isn't looking for work anymore, isn't studying, and isn't contributing to society in any way. And that is a product of disaffection. And unfortunately, many of these younger folks are voting for the increasingly far-right Um, I'm quite hopeful, though, about these things. And I think there is within that space of people not being able to sort of slot into the capitalism as usual business. There are small groups of people who are getting bigger very slowly in Italy and across Europe, I, I, I know as well, who are sort of asking the sorts of questions that might be coming up in our conversation. And certainly they're looking for new economic and political models that they can get involved with The next question I have really might relate to that to some degree, which is, you know, if we talk about Buddhist economics, I'm I'm aware this um, in part comes from the work of E.F. Schumacher, who I'd like to ask you about in a moment. Before we get to that, I'd wonder what your your experience has been of doors both opening and closing by using the word buddhist which is obviously problematic in some contexts and perhaps interesting in others and i wonder if there's been more receptivity or uptake at least of the idea in you know what we generally call eastern countries
1: i'm not sure what to call it to be honest matthew because i wish someone had asked your question before they made the title of my book mm. because the pushback on the word buddhist has been so strong right. out, <laughs> outside of people who practice Buddhism, which, mm. as you know, is wonderful, well-educated, well mining people around the world, but not a whole lot of them. No. So I think that I'm not sure what the right name would be, but I do think we need to find a name that brings together all of the economists that working, are working in this sort of broader, holistic uh, economics for the common good, and it has it comes under various names by various people. Um, for example, the Nobel laureate uh, Joe Stiglitz just wrote a book about progressive capitalism, which, if you read it, sounds a lot like Buddhist economics. So it's like there's all this overlap. And then there's a book on um, on donut economics coming out of the UK. So there's work going on that sort of covers a lot of the same territory but no one's found a name that resonates and i do think that with the media and with sort of the public that holds back people's way of thinking about it and so instead you hear a lot of diatribes against so-called capitalism Mm -hmm. uh, of all kinds although most people aren't sure what They are actually against, except they they are definitely against free markets. They just may not know it. Mm. They're against neoliberalism, but they may not know to call it that. It's like people about sort of this economics dilemma aren't sure even how to express it. And I don't think we're doing a very good way of teaching it Mm. and expressing it to help them along. We, We really ought to be doing much better.
0: I can't help but think that the word Buddhist um, probably has to go at some point. Because um, <laughs> who are you going to convince otherwise at a global global level? But um, you um, you talked about your index before, and I'm afraid I've already forgotten the key words that you used in defining that. Could you repeat those?
1: It's called Sustainable Shared Prosperity Policy Index. Yeah, So th- so think about it's our two key economic problems you know, killing the planet. Mm. So we need to be sustainable. Inequality, so we need to share prosperity. And then the policy index. Mm. It doesn't even bring in the, the compassionate part of reducing suffering.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because that's that's the sort of word that when you use it in the field of economics often shuts down discourse or shuts down interest from those who are very much wed to classical economics. And, you know, what keeps coming to my mind is that you need a sort of a proactive set of terms that would would stimulate interest in those who are always looking, you know, at the future. I think one of the problems with Buddhism is that inherent, certainly to earlier forms of Buddhism, is the the notion of uh, renunciation, which obviously doesn't fit with with key concepts within economics. Um, That said, E.F. Schumacher was one of the first people to mention this notion of Buddhist economics, he said he basically looked at the world of Buddhism and it came from his reading of that. Um, you've mentioned Schumacher as well a couple of times in your talks that I've, I've listened to. And so can you say a little bit about Schumacher? What ideas of his inform your own, if they still do? And one of the elements I like about his whole approach to talking about economics more broadly in the environment is he keeps coming back to this idea that there's common sense there. And I think he's right I think common sense could be a winning argument in promoting this kind of alternative approach to reimagining, rethinking policy in our age.
1: Yes. Well, you know, Shoemaker wrote his essay, Buddhist Economics, in the late 60s. And it was one of the essays in his very influential and popular book, Small is Beautiful. And it fit in for him because what he was trying to show is that you – Don't become happy. You don't live a meaningful life by consuming. That's not how it's done. And so he really focused on getting people away from materialism and into practicing life in a way that engaged them, that really made everyone happy and satisfied with what they were doing, a worthy life. And he said, it's Buddhist because of the noble truth called right livelihood. So he says that's economics. And he did talk a lot about work, which was good, except that when he wrote it, the women's movement was just starting and he still pretty much thought women would be at home taking care of kids and men would be out working for a terrible boss. And um, it was, you know, it was the context was of the times, but his idea about how you want to very efficiently and effectively use the fewest resources possible to gain the maximal sort of contentment or outcome, but not based upon the maximal market output. So he really differentiated between what kind of life you were creating versus just buying stuff. And and that to me is a cornerstone of Buddhist economics But the other problem was also at that point, we didn't realize that our fossil fuel use was overheating the earth and killing the planet. Mm. And so, of course, also it doesn't have his idea of caring for the planet was just appreciating it, but not, of course, he didn't also know at that point about the problem with fossil fuel energy. So, do you think we
0: need then a revolution to bring about the change you might be seeking or imagining in your work? Because If we look at the environment, which you've just mentioned, um, you know, there's this kind of tension point between us as individuals or families or small-scale communities enacting small, everyday changes. And we're encouraged to do that by a range of different experts and people working within different fields, from economics to environmental studies. Um, But obviously, if we're going to bring about uh, a genuine, massive change in our entire global economic approach, we do need something akin to a revolution. Now, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of revolution. (laughs) I mean, historically, it tends to lead to all kinds of new problems, and, you know, ends up killing off large numbers of people. But I wonder, you know, on a good day, I mean, you must think about this, I I think we all do to some degree. Um, How do you see change taking place over the next decade or 50 years, do you think it's going to have to come down to some kind of genuine revolution? And do you think we can bring that about without, you know, immense amounts of violence, but a reduction in the suffering that, you know, a good Buddhist would would hope for?
1: I think we don't have to have revolution, but we do have to have enormous structural change. And in Buddhist economics, in my book, I say, okay, yeah, we can all change the way, we can all reduce our carbon footprint, we can all make improvements in how we're treating the earth. And each other, but we all need to actually get off the sofa and get politically involved. And I think, for example, in the United States, well, okay, full disclosure: I am a big supporter of Elizabeth Warren hmm. because she has a whole set of plans which fit right along with Buddhist economics and the new in the Green New Deal. Hmm. And none of these changes call for revolution. They actually call for in some sense, for recreating um, the economy before neoliberalism took over in the 80s so that we would have more worker power. We would have higher minimum wages. We would have health care for all. We would have universal education that's accessible to all people. We would have a social safety net that really took away the fear of people that they lost their job and helped them get into another job so that we would function much better as an economy, and in the U.S., it's not that hard to figure out how to pay for it because we spend over seven hundred billion dollars on our defense budget. And yeah. everyone that I know thinks half of that is like is could be just restructured into housing and healthcare and food yeah. security and so forth. And and there are actually quite a few budgets out there that. That have been done that show how to do that. So in the US, I don't see it as revolution. Hmm. I certainly see it as evolution. Mm-hmm. I see it as restructuring the economy. And Matthew, you definitely are on to a really important point in terms of we've really got to change the way people are thinking about what they need to live well. And in California for example, when I talk to people and we talk about we got to get out of our gas-guzzling cars, they look at me like what? No, no. And in fact, in California, we've really really moved along with clean electricity and making our buildings of energy efficient and we're really doing great things to reduce our carbon footprint except in transportation. Mm. And so, transportation is now forty percent of all of our greenhouse gas emissions, mm-hmm. and we're not sure what to do about it. So, it's interesting. I I think there's definitely some roadblocks, and I'm not sure how to overcome them.
0: You sound pretty optimistic, and I think you framed it nicely and reminded me and uh, many of the listeners that perhaps these things are not so far out of reach, so beyond our grasp, if if we can change. Uh, a couple of key figures at the top of the, the pyramid, so to speak. Yeah, obviously, I'm not American, so I follow American events only to a certain degree, and I, I haven't really understood which is the the best of the, the Democratic uh, candidates so far. I just hope that the, the left generally can avoid excessive fragmentation and get behind somebody who, who stands a chance of winning. And I think my greatest concern about Trump winning the next election again is actually the environment more than anything else because I know that he's been rolling back some protections. So I guess as an optimist, I would, if I was going to um, follow you in in your thinking, I might say that uh, if things are good for us, you know, Trump and uh, Salvini and politicians in various Western countries who are pretty far to the right, perhaps they are the last gasp of this system which is no longer sustainable. And hopefully enough people will uh, make the right choice at voting time and get rid of them.
1: Right. Yeah, I think you're right that business as usual cannot continue without basically destroying the planet and our way of life. Yeah. I also want to mention anytime someone starts talking about k- revolutions and killing people, one of the things that I'm so distressed by, and I'm sure you and the listeners are, is we're actually right now with with the climate crisis killing many of people around the earth. and only really going to make it worse with heat, with, with floods, with tsunamis, with fires. It's like in, in South, southern sub-Saharan Africa, they can't grow crops anymore because it's too hot and too dry. And so the death rate is going to continue to go up from the climate crisis. Mm. And of course, richer people can find ways to survive, but we're really hurting the poorest and the and the people who are least able to care for themselves.
0: It's interesting because you mentioned that phrase, which I think is fundamental for us all to, to absorb and perhaps include more in our, our everyday conversation with all the kinds of people that we come into contact with, which is that we actually physically, materially cannot continue with business as usual. And I remember, you know, in the 80s, even recognising in my family, that we were already at that point, at the point that we could not continue with business as usual. And then we unfortunately had you know, the, the duo of Reagan and Thatcher, sort of hypercharged neoliberal policy. And of course, we've been suffering that for the last decades. But perhaps that's also in an, a sort of perverse sense, our real hope, uh, an increasing recognition at all levels of society that we really cannot continue as we are, and we must change. And some of those changes um will be in the long term for the betterment of uh the masses rather than the few. And that's my hope at least. But if I were gonna take that towards a question as we get towards the last uh ten minutes of our conversation today, I um you've mentioned Elizabeth Warren, but if you think about your colleagues both at the university you work at at universities across the planet and economists too who would you name as perhaps some of the allies who are thinking along similar lines to you? And if our reader, if our listeners sorry, were interested in, in picking up books by people who are trying to get to grips with this, this kind of material and these kind of thoughts, obviously ab- apart from your own book on Buddhist economics, who would you recommend and who do you think is doing work that may actually be powerful enough and credible enough to start impacting think tanks and governments and thinkers worldwide? Hello, it's me again. And yes, I know it's rather rude to interrupt this lovely conversation that you've given up your time to listen to, but I kind of have to. You may have noticed the traditional introduction for the podcast was missing today. That's because I'm trying to figure out what to do with it. You may also have noticed I wasn't plugging my coaching business either. Now, that's very bad of me. And in fact, I'm not a very good capitalist. It just seems to me that trying to get people to pay money for things is really the wrong approach people should choose to do so and be free to do so as well now I've got a new website if you follow the Facebook page or Twitter feed you probably know about that now I do have a coaching business and I have mentioned it before I see it really as a as needed come along I have a regular job teaching which some of you may know And that allows me to do things like this podcast and the coaching and the workshops I do as well in a way that's not really dependent on people coughing up cash. It also means that those poor students who don't have a dime to rub together or, well, those people who are living on benefits or whatnot or the increasing number of people on zero contract hours and that kind of nefarious business arrangement – can actually come along and get some insight, some teaching, or whatever they need. So Coaching O'Connell is now integrated into the site. You can have a look at what I do if you're interested. If you think about the themes I'm covering in this podcast, those are the kinds of things I tend to help people along with. And since this is the practice season, I should mention that I'm not a Buddhist teacher, wouldn't claim to be one as such, but I do use Buddhist materials, including meditation. So if you're looking for somebody to work with that kind of stuff, to find a practicing life that you can use to go forwards that doesn't require you to give up your intellect give up your autonomy and start slipping back into some of the the fantasies and dysfunctional characteristics of contemporary spirituality and buddhism that we've addressed on this podcast you might want to get in touch I tend to draw on post-traditional, non-Buddhist style approaches, but if you would like to review what it means to even conceptualize something like meditation or practice or compassion or awakening in a context in which we can be critical together and explore very much in the 21st century set of lenses, then that's the kind of thing I'm up to. And if you're interested, take a look at the website.
1: Oh, that's a really broad question. And that fortunately, there is a lot going on. The economists are doing especially well in reducing inequality and sharing prosperity. They've been a little late to the research party about how to include sustainability. But the Stiglitz book I mentioned, um, that's it's called The Price of Inequality, or it's, it's a progressive capitalism, is in the title and the subtitle. That's a really good book because he's trying a little bit to bring in sustainability in a way that shares prosperity. But I think, to be honest, a lot of the work that brings in sustainability is not being done by economists, but by the ecological um, experts. And, and a lot of them do know some economics, which is good. And so one of the people that I follow on Twitter and read and think is really terrific is Bill McKibben, the founder mm-hmm. of 350.org. Mm-hmm. All oh, right, yeah. And I read him all the time. And then one could even go back to Barry Commoner, who was one of the founders of modern ecology, because he gave us the four laws of ecology. And one was interdependence. And, and along the same lines was impermanence. And so I read Ecological Economics, the journal, which may be a bit tough for some people. But if you if you scout around and start with people like Commoner um, and McKibben, who writes great books, then you can quickly find other books that you're interested in. But one of the books I would stay away from, which is not by an economist, but is a so-called so a Buddhist based book is Robert Wright's book, Why Buddhism is true. <laughs> because Matthew, you didn't ask me. I was waiting for the question that I always get about <laughs> what is human nature? What's hey, can we really actually this 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 cultural evolution that's taking us down the dark path right now? Isn't it just because people are selfish and people want their own personal liberty to do whatever they feel like doing. And no one wants to be told what to do. And no one wants to care for other people. Um, and of course that's the line that Robert Wright pushed is that he doesn't do cultural evolution. He, but he's based upon biological evolution. Hmm. And everybody that I've talked to and worked with from Buddhists, such as at Lion's Roar with Melvin McLeod, Um, to evolutionists think Robert Wright is not on the right path. Um, (laughs) Because anybody who who comes from Buddhism really believes, follows much more the path of Ricard, who wrote this wonderful 500-page book called Altruism, about what is altruism? Are people altruistic? And this is a pretty deep question. We could spend another hour on it, but I care a lot and think a lot about, well, what role does altruism play? Cause it's an important part of Buddhist economics and do, are people naturally selfish or do they have, do they care about others? And so the neuroscientists and all of the psychologists and economists who've gone to study, how do people behave? They come back and say, Oh, Well, the economists say, just a second, actually, people are altruistic. We didn't expect that. People do care and take care of themselves, of course. And that's called self-regarding. But people almost always show other regarding or altruism of helping or caring for people without expecting anything in return. And as long as there's some altruism there, then the Buddhist economic model is the right model as opposed to just thinking people are only selfish and, and we could go on and talk about all the studies that show what makes people happy mm-hmm. um, and so forth. But there's a lot out there that addresses this question, which I think right now is such an important question. Cause as you point out, we have so many leaders right now who are angry, who are aggressive, who pra- who preach selfishness and practice it. And in the U.S. are really racist and trying to divide people. And we're saying, oh, is this like what we should expect? Is this what people are like? But from a Buddhist viewpoint, the answer is no, that this is delusion. This is sort of the social clouds that come over people and cause delusion. And that it's not the basic nature that. People, There is some enlightened self-interest within all of us to live a good life, a moral life, a right life, and that right livelihood or right living is very important to people, and it does make them happier, and it makes the world better. So I, I think a lot about this question of what's human nature and how altruistic are we and how to help support altruism.
0: I guess the reason I didn't ask you for a question is, as a question is because I think it's, uh, I don't, this is not to offend you, but I think it's a dumb question in the sense that to me, it's so obvious that a simplistic analysis of human beings as being one or the other would, would fail miserably to, to live up to any critique, you know?
1: <laughs> oh, but Matthew, I'm so happy to hear that. Because <laughs> economists, I mean, you're right. I think you represent all educated People outside of economics,
0: <laughs> <laughs> right? Okay, there we go.
1: Whereas you go among economists, it's to this day, I am among economists who say, "What people aren't just selfish? What it's like?" Just a second, you got to go read the literature. It's like economists have come along finally uh, in the last twenty years, but it's still a, it's still a slog.
0: There's a couple of things I'd say to that. The first one is that I think you need a certain form of university education sometimes to to actually learn certain forms of ignorance or even stupidity. Um, <laughs> on the other side, I would uh, give give a quote that you're probably familiar with, which is by the, uh, the figure from the BBC, Richard Attenborough, who's a very important figure in the creation of uh, documentaries about the environment. And in a talk he gave, yes. he said, you either have to be utterly stupid or an economist to believe that unlimited growth will go on forever. And of course, it is obvious. I think a lot of these things are obvious. And we're kind of, um, we're sold a lie by the, the current political order and the current economic order, which people, I think, worryingly, more than anything, it's not that they actually believe it to be true, but they just accept that those are the conditions upon which we have to live. And that's why I think that point about encouraging thinking and discussion in which we accept that actually business as usual is no longer possible has to become more of a norm so that the kind of discussion you and I are having now and the sort of topics you're thinking about quite clearly, they have to become part of um, a sort of long-term project which, is, which isn't just alarmism and isn't just a sort of knee-jerk reaction against the extremes of Trump or uh, Salvini or whoever, but are a new kind of sort of collective awareness and commitment to imagining the world moving in a very different direction to the one it's currently going in. Certainly one of the failings of the the 80s and the 90s, when a lot of these ideas started becoming more more well-known, is that there was this sort of utopian, um, idealistic sort of, um, I would call immature fantasy about what was possible. And I think we're at the point now where we're perhaps grounded enough to realise the truth of the limits of economic growth the absolute necessity to engage with the environment differently, but also this this point about imagining who we are as collectives in ways that are not utopian and unrealistic, but are basically based on the facts of our current situation and the question of, well, what do we want to do about it and what could we do about it, rather than just say, well, this is inevitable and that isn't.
1: Right, I agree. I keep asking people the question, what is important to you? What makes your life meaningful? And you never get back consumption. You get back relationships and and experiences and contributing to your community. And, you know, we need to think of growth as a progress forward, not based upon consumption, but progress forward with cleaning up the air and moving to a, a planet that is sustainable And economic growth means reducing consumption of luxuries and positional goods at the top. One of the reasons people are feeling so bad, I think, is that economic growth has gone primarily to the top, the wealthiest people around the world. And so everybody in the middle is feeling left out and not even just the middle, the bottom 80 to 90 Uh percent are feeling left out, discarded. You think about the youth in Italy. It's like, just a second. We have the resources we have we're, we're, we're very rich around the world if we rethink about who we are, how we want to use our resources and how to support a meaningful, comfortable life for everyone. So you're right. That's a that's a new vision, but it's not against economic growth. It's thinking about what is growth to create quality of life. And in that way, we have lots that we can do there. There's and a lot we need to do. Because we need to totally rethink energy and the way we build cities and how much time we work and yeah. sort of how to balance life. And we can do that. We have the resources. And so you may think, I don't even want to use the word revolution because I think you're right. That <laughs> gets people too riled up. But we can certainly restructure and rethink the economy to produce those outcomes.
0: Yeah, well, I agree with you and it's it's great to to come towards a close on an optimistic note. Uh the one final point I would make um would be that I think I think a lot of people who are living in that sort of in-between space, a sort of bardo so to speak, like these young Italians, uh, one of the things I do in my teaching role is to try and encourage people to to assert their democratic right to participate in answering these kinds of questions because we've seen that a lot of the experts who are still operating, in you know, in think tanks and whatnot, they are ideologically captured by neoliberalism. And they do need to be challenged. And we do need young creative minds engaging with these topics as real possibilities, rather than just pessimism. And, you know, it's great to hear that that certainly seems to be part of the work you're doing. I do want to say one thing to listeners before we, we run out of time, which is that you've added this very nice section to your website so the book, uh, which I mentioned in the introduction, but I'll just repeat again now, is is called Buddhist Economics. And on your website, which is buddhisteconomics.net, there's this great uh, page called Reading Group Guide, in which you present a very nice set of questions, which some of them, I would suggest, sort of respond to some of the sorts of topics we've been tackling today, and it's freely available, and people could do that on their own, or with a partner, or in their family, or as part of a meditation group too, right?
1: Oh, yes. That would thrill me to know when to know <laughs> people are talking about how to integrate sort of Buddhist economics into their lives as part of their practice.
0: Yeah, great. So recommended. And as I mentioned as well, Jeffrey Sachs is a big fan too. So well done for getting his support, Claire. And uh, thank you for coming on and, and speaking to us about this uh, fascinating topic. And I really obviously wish you the best with uh, carrying these ideas forward.
1: Matthew, it's been wonderful talking to you and thank you for helping all of us think broader and in more caring ways.
0: Great. You're most welcome. All the best for now.